All right, so we are continuing on in our study of Genesis, and we're in Genesis chapter 3, and we're now to the part where we pick up the confrontation of Adam. We've looked at um, the confrontation of the serpent, and we saw how in that confrontation in verses 14 and 15 of Genesis chapter 3, that uh, there is actually a curse that is leveled out by God on the, on the actual uh, created being, uh, the serpent, in that he was made to, to crawl on the ground and, and, and really be the lowliest of animals, if you will, even physically, and really to serve as a perpetual sign and symbol of God's judgment against sin. But then also the, the curse was leveled against the serpent who was obviously using this, this created being, this, this not, not, not a being that was you know, self-conscious and reasoning and rational like, like we are as, as created in the image of God and humans, but he was being used by the serpent of old, as Revelation refers to him. And so there was a, there was a curse leveled out against him and this declaration of the ongoing struggle that's going to occur uh, between good and evil, and, the, and between man and Satan, and the battle that will ensue there, and then the ultimate, uh, the ultimate promise of a coming seed that will bruise the head of the serpent. Um, and then we move into the curse of the woman, and we talked about how that produces uh, some specific or explicit things like pain and childbearing, but really it's a broader uh, term there. It's really pain and toil, in the entire nature of the motherhood experience. Um, there's a struggle for control in the context of human relationships, particularly in the relationship of marriage. Um, and there's really this, this promise that, that there will be a subjugation that, w- that women gen- generally will experience. Um, and we talked about how that, that has been the, the, um, the sad and really... Uh, discouraging testimony of history throughout the ages, and, and, and yet how we have the opportunity as believers to redeem this, this appropriate and proper relationship of man and woman in mutual uh, uh, role and responsibility in, in a harmonious, complementary fashion, and really to represent Christ and His church on the earth. And so, uh, so you have this, this curse that's leveled out against the woman in some particular areas. And really, it's important to recognize, I just want to make one sort of statement about that. We're not going to go back into, into the curse of the woman in, in any more length, but I just wanted to kind of make one more statement about that, that it's important, and we'll see this as well when we look at the curse on Adam, but to recognize that the consequences of sin as they are, as they are communicated in the, in the form of this curse of the woman they're not experienced merely in, in an isolated fashion, you know, isolated to certain human experiences like childbearing or, or in the context of marital relationship and the desire for control and the desire for dominance. But really, the curse goes at the very essence of womanhood. This is, this is the point, that it, that it really it strikes at the very essence and nature of what it means to be a woman. And you're going to see the same kind of thing play out uh, in the curse of the man. So it does; it is representative, or it is exemplified in specific ways, or in, in ex- specific experiences of, for example, childbearing and of motherhood, and the heart of, of women for children, and the heartache that that can bring in the context of a fallen world. Remember, I read that long 
uh, excerpt from a sermon last week that really kind of uh, gave a vivid picture of that. But it really goes at the, what it, the very essence of womanhood, that where the, 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 the effects of the curse will be experienced. That's, that's the, the idea here. And then today, we turn our attention to the curse of Adam. And so before we step into that, let me just uh, pick up the passage, and we'll start really in verse 14 of, chapter, of Genesis chapter 3, and we'll just kind of capture the whole, the whole uh, um, confrontation there. Um, starting, in, starting with the serpent, and we'll read all the way down through verse 19 together before we start our time. So, verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So again, we see here the curse of the serpent, the curse of the woman, and then we turn now to the curse of the man, the curse of Adam. And the first thing we notice just in the text itself is that the curse is directed at Adam's compromised, uh, his compromise of his headship role is called out right, at the, right out of the gate. That, that compromise of that important role and responsibility, God calls out because he says in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, here's, here's something important to note. Adam was not deceived by the serpent. You, you, you see that, how that, that plays out in the, in, the, in the narrative there. Adam was not deceived by the serpent. The, the, the dialogue takes place between the serpent and Eve. Adam essentially abdicated his responsibility as, as, as a husband and as a, as a, as a man and, as a, and his headship responsibility. Um, it says he listened to the voice of his wife. So, so what's the lesson here? Um, is, it, is it husbands don't ever listen to your wives? <laughs> that explains. I mean, I, I, there's probably times, I have to admit, that I'd probably like to point to this passage and say, see... I mean, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not obligated here, just so you know. If I listen to you, it's out of the goodness of my heart, because I am certainly not obligated to listen to you. I mean, of course, that's not what it is. Um, it's not about not ever listening to your wives, because it, he, he, he specifically qualifies it. And you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. So it's a specific rebuke. It's not a rebuke for Adam's failure to ignore his wife, right? That would be absurd. It's a rebuke for his failure to protect and lead his wife in, a joy, in joyful obedience and submission to God. It's, it's his failure of his fundamental main role in that relationship. Well, isn't it a question of who do you believe, God or your wife? Yes, of course. I mean, there was, there was definitely a, a taking on of, of the, the influence of the wife. 
um, in a way that was adverse to the influence of God or to the trust of God, of course. Yeah, I mean, what we don't know is exactly how that all took place, but what you, in terms of what kind of dialogue may have happened, I mean, certainly there's a real absence of anything, particularly when you look at verse 6 in chapter 3, where all it says is, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired, and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and all it says is, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So there's no, there's no expansion of that, but what you can clearly gather from the nature of, of God's leveling of the curse, and we talked about this, I don't know, maybe last week or in the, in the past few weeks, we talked about how um, Adam, from the looks of it, if you just look at the face of, of Genesis 3, verse 6, it almost looks like he's just you know, kind of an innocent bystander who's handed a, a, what, what it looks to be a very delectable piece of fruit, and I mean, what else is he going to do? I mean, he's a man, he's hungry, I mean, you know, it's, there's almost like this, we could kind of draw these inferences just because there's an absence of, of a lot of description there. But when you look at the actual curse that God levels out, clearly you see it was much more deliberate than that. It was much more, there was much more intention, and, and there had to be uh, a clear contemplation of the action that was taking place. It was a deliberate uh, mistrust of the Word of God and an embracing of really ultimately by extension the, the, the vain and empty promise of the serpent. He had to know that the fruit that was being offered by his wife was that which was forbidden. Yeah, yeah, no, I, no, no doubt about it. I think the curse makes that clear. He, ha- he knew what he was doing. He, it was obvious that, that what he was doing was he was buying into, and, and I'm sure that it's possible that the, 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 the temptation, and this is what we don't know. Again, you get into sort of speculation here. But what we don't know is we don't know how, um, what their sort of interplay with the fruit of the trees of the garden might have looked like and how there might have been sort of a curiosity developing, you know, all along. We don't, we don't know any of that. We don't see any of that. But clearly there's no mistake by the nature of the way that the curse is articulated Adam knew what he was doing, and that was pointed out specifically and explicitly. I don't know how to conclude that definitively, because all you have there is that he was with her. You know, So maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But all we do know is that we, we know that he took of the fruit, and he knew what he was doing. Okay, We, kn- we know that clearly. Um, and it's certainly possible that he, although he wasn't being directly approached by the serpent, that he was there and heard it. We don't know. But the point is, is that, is that this really goes at uh, Adam's abdication of his, of his primary responsibility as, as the man and the husband here, as, as really a protector, as one who is to, um, to hold up the truth of God Right to, to, to make that standard clear and definitive, and, and he, just, he just abdicated that altogether. Uh, he was not a passive bystander, and he consciously and deliberate, deliberately uh, made this decision, the most fundamental responsibility that he had. And when you think about this, when you think about the, the instruction, particularly in the New Testament, we've talked about at length um, when we were talking about the whole, the whole subject of marriage, 
in weeks past, but just reminding you of uh, that sort of central passage in Ephesians chapter 6, where it says in verse 22 and following, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So there's that that designation of the headship role. Uh, As Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself, its savior. So there's 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 an element of, of salvation work that's, that's sort of being alluded to uh, in this comparison, this, this comparison of husband and wife and Christ and the church. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. So there, there should have been a motivation. If we can safely understand from this curse that Adam knew that this was the fruit of which God said, you shall surely not eat of it. If he knew that, and he was there with her, then him sort of standing idly by and allowing that, that fruit to be taken of is not giving himself up for her at all, right? So I'm confused. What do you think their relationship was before they sinned? Because in, in verse 16 it there at the end it says, and he will rule over you. It sounds like prior to their sinning he didn't necessarily have the rule. What do you think their, their position was to each other? Well, I mean, if you just look at <clears throat> the you know, Genesis 1 and 2, and particularly Genesis chapter 2, um, there is this clear indication of, of Eve being a suitable helper. And so there's, there's, this, there's this idea of, or this, this, um, this imagery of, of um, mutual um, image of Christ bearing on planet Earth, but there's a distinct... Um, headship and helper kind of role that's elucidated there in Genesis chapter 1. She was a compliment, but I do think that there was a headship role that was, um, it wasn't as though they were supposed to sort of collaborate on decisions. I don't think that that's what's implied in Genesis chapter 2 at all. Um, But I don't think that, I mean, it's hard for us to, I think, uh, fully understand, fully think about this um, without having it, having our thinking muddled by our own sort of sinful thoughts and the, and the sinful culture around us and just how we, the world that we live in. But there was a purity, you know, in that relationship dynamic. And, and, and in, even in their own understanding of the relationship that God had put them in and what their particular roles in that relationship were. So it wasn't marred by any any uh, sense of insecurity or, or uh, desire for power or control or, or any of that, right? That's what happens after the fall. I think there's a similarity between the husband and the wife and God and his son. They're equal, but God is still That, that's a, that's a, a reasonable, I think, um, um, analogy there. Uh, clearly, there's no, there's no instruction in Scripture of, of um, uh, unequal status of, of essence before God or, or standing before God. Or, I mean, we've talked about this you know, at length, about how um, before, before Christ and before the cross, we stand equally in need of a Savior. There's no sort of ranking there, but clearly there is a distinctiveness of role and responsibility, 
and one is stronger in the area of leadership, and one is stronger in the area of help and support. But we said all along, and this, that we kind of went through this before you guys started coming to the class, we talked about how they're not mutually exclusive roles, meaning that husbands are not always leading and never submitting, and wives are not always submitting and never leading. They're not mutually exclusive, but there is an emphasis. There is a sort of a main um, uh, priority of responsibility that's clearly articulated in Scripture. Yeah, any, any way, a number of ways to kind of look, about, look at it or think about it when you think about the context of home and family and all that, social structures and all that. So but when you continue on to look at Ephesians chapter 6, you see these terms, giving himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So there's this, there's this analogy of, of the sanctifying, cleansing work in the life of Christ with his church, and there's this, there's this uh, analogy here of the husband having a certain key responsibility of maintaining and helping to ensure and encourage the, the purity and, and holiness and righteousness and right relationship uh, of the wife with God and, 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 and her, own, her own holiness and sanctification and all that. So there's, there's just this, this idea of the husband's role and responsibility that we see back in the garden where Adam completely... Uh, you know, abdicated that responsibility on, really ultimately in protecting her and, 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 and guarding her from, from this, this fall. And so that's what God goes after very clearly right out of the gate. So we have this, uh, this calling out of the compromised headship role here. First thing that God calls out. Um, then you see how he moves into the sphere of man's primary uh, function uh, on the earth. And he, he, the earth is cursed. That's what we see next. The actual earth is cursed. Verse 17, starting in the second half of verse 17, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. And then you drop to verse 18, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So literally the physical elements of creation are cursed as a result of this. It, it's, it's, it, and actually I think Shane talked about this maybe last week or the week before. It's the, the law of entropy where things are breaking down. Entropy, a measure of the unavailable energy in a closed thermodynamic system that is also usually considered to be a measure of the system's disorder that is a property of the system's state and that varies directly with any reversible change in heat in the system and inversely with the temperature of the system. Broadly, the degree of disorder uncertainty in the system. That's entropy. Another definition, the degradation of the matter and energy in the universe to an ultimate state of inert uniformity. Another definition, a process of degradation or running down or a trend to disorder. And then the third definition, chaos, disorganization, and randomness. So what you have here is this cosmic shift from order and abundance and unhindered natural provision to disorder and to scarcity and to the demand for laborious manual cultivation and toil against thorns and thistles. So there is a cosmic shift here, even in the very physical elements of the created world um, that takes place as a result of the fall. Now, to help us kind of really grasp the magnitude of this, the significance of this, what was the physical condition of the heavens and the earth at the outset of God's creative work? What was it? The very outset. 
You guys remember? Before that. Chaos, right? Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There was, there was you, you look at the actual terms there, and it's this, it, they, they carry the idea of, of barrenness, of, of sort of waste, if you will, of, of a void, and darkness, like utter darkness, covered the face of the deep. The complete absence of any source of light. So, what is the when you think about the, the creation narrative as it unfolds, so if it starts there, what is the, the directional progression that we see in the days of creation in Genesis chapter 1? What direction is it going? Going to order, though. It's going from vast emptiness and void and darkness and really, it could be considered, or it could be uh, defined as a, a chaotic um, um, world in terms of the physical elements, and it moves progressively to order. I mean, right out of the gate, it says in verse one, in chapter one, verse two, that darkness was over the face of the deep, and the first thing that happens, and God said, "Let there be light," bringing light into darkness, out of darkness. So you go from darkness to light, you move from disorder to order, you move from empty barrenness to fruitful abundance. I mean, that's the clear progression in the creation account and the creation narrative. And then you have the curse coming, and it, re- it begins to reverse that. It begins to reverse this original design of the Creator. And it really sets in motion a process of perpetual disorder and decay. That's what you have going on here with the curse of the ground. From Shane's message last week, uh, from Romans eight nineteen to twenty, he quoted this. Uh, he said, "For the creation, uh, Romans says this: For the creation waits uh, with eager longing for the re- revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know." that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. So even the creation itself has been subjected to the curse in, in substantial ways, and it serves also as a reminder of the curse, but also the hope of a new heaven and a new earth, the hope of restoring what was lost. And so you have the New Testament giving us allusions to that regarding the actual physical creation. So here's, here's where you have, so in the same way that the, the wife's very, the very essence of womanhood was where the curse landed in, in, the, in the most profound sense, you have a similar or very, really the same kind of um, effect here. Um, the sphere of man's pain is identified in verse, the second half of verse 17 all the way down through verse 19. It says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this is not just simply an adverse effect on man's work. It's, it's not just to say, that you know, you used to have a, a scenario where 
you had to do cultivation and picking of fruit and that kind of thing, but the environment that you occupied was so abundant and absent of any encumbrance. I mean, imagine, imagine an environment. I don't know about you guys, but um, I, the weeds that I have to deal with in my yard, it's, just, it's, just, it's really frustrating, isn't it? I mean, if you just think about even on the simplest level of trying to just maintain a small plot of ground, and, and what that requires. I've even gotten to the point where the, when I start contemplating some type of small, I'm talking small-scale landscape project. Landscape project makes it sound much bigger than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about maybe planting some flowers or something, right, in my yard. When I start contemplating that, my mind immediately goes to what all it's going to take for me to maintain that. What am, what am I getting myself into? Because... I used to just I used to go about it by just saying, man, it would really be nice to have some flowers here, and all I have to do is plant them, and then th- how great would that look? And I, and and, and I, I become I'd be, I would become so naive in my thinking because I'd drive by people's yards and I'd see, wow, look what they just did. That looks really really good. And I think I want to do that something like that in my yard. I've got a spot where that that'd be great. And so all I would think about was sort of the end result of what I'm seeing as I drive by, you know, 25 or 30 miles an hour in a neighborhood. I'm not even contemplating, okay, go ahead, plant those flowers. Set it and forget it and see what happens, right? We know what happens. What happens if, you're, if your sprinklers don't hit it enough? What happens if you overwater? What happens if you don't take care of the weeds? What happens if you plant and then a, fr- a freeze comes, you know, late in the, in the spring that you weren't expecting? I mean, there's just all these these natural elements and these natural effects that bring about burdensome cultivation of the land. But this curse is much more than that, even though that's a significant reminder. That's a significant reminder to us, even in the smallest of contemplations of planting a few flowers in your yard. It's a constant reminder of this, that the earth has been cursed, that we are in a fallen world that that there is, there is a, a, a consequence, severe and cosmic consequence to sin. Uh, we, can, we can see that manifest even in that simple example. But the fact of the matter is, is that just like the woman, this is, this is not just an adverse effect on his work, but it's, it brings pain and toil to the very essence of, of manhood, of, of working and providing and sustaining a livelihood. And I, I don't, I mean... That, that has become more and more of a, I guess my understanding of that, and I think that it makes sense, I mean, naturally, my understanding of that principle has sort of grown more significant and more profound the older I've, I've gotten. It gets even more significant and profound when you put children into the mix and you start having you know, responsibility for little ones and you start thinking about the nature of provision. It comes into play uh, for men especially who are struggling in a career or in a job. They're struggling with just vocational contentment. Or they're struggling with maybe even finding employment. You know, and they have uh, you know, family that they're supposed to be trying to take care of and support. And it can lead to tremendous, deep-level discouragement, even despairing kinds of struggles in this area. So when you just sort of think about the nature of, of what this curse does and the toil, and obviously... You know, we are not living in a primarily agrarian culture anymore, particularly in, you know, in our sort of our sphere here. I mean, obviously, there are agrarian cultures all over the place, all around the world and all, but, 
But, you know, ours is not the same kind of day-to-day experience where, you know, most of our jobs we have to go out and we have to plant and we have to maintain and we have to water and then we have to harvest and then we have to plant. I mean, that's not the nature of our, our vocational experience by and large. But the idea of sweat of your brow, the toil, the, the, the nature of toil in the context of work, the dealing with difficult relationships, struggling with insecurity. I mean, I can't tell you. I've, I've, uh, I, I, I've, I've done some, um, I don't call it counseling, um, providing counsel, providing um, advice, and, and trying to mentor some younger guys. And almost invariably, the discussions go to this, this whole area of work and career and what I'm going to do with my life and and I'm really struggling with this job, and I don't really, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time dealing with this boss, and it almost invariably the conversation or the discussion goes to that, and oftentimes there is profound struggle, there's profound discouragement, there is significant difficulty in really just having a, a, an appropriate and hopeful outlook on life that gets clouded and, and confused at the very source of of a man trying to contemplate what he's going to do with his life or what he's doing with his life now and how he's going to support his family and, and comparing himself to what he sees as success of other men and how am I going to get to that level of success. I mean, all these, these mental gymnastics that, that we go through. And so if you just kind of expand the thought process about how this can play, this curse can play itself out in the heart and mind, of a man. I'm not saying women don't struggle with the same thing, but I'm saying this goes at the real heart of, of manhood in terms of the responsibility of being provider and, and support. And even men who are, who are single, this is not just confined to, to men who are married and have a family. I mean, in, in general, most men are hoping to get married one day and hoping to have a family one day. That's the general, uh, the general nature of of human experience and, and malehood, malehood uh, manhood. So, so the, the trend here is toward this desire for provision and provision through work of some kind. And so the nature of that struggle often centers in some way, in some fashion, at that epicenter. And it leads to all manner of struggle, when you, when you start thinking about the challenges that happen that can occur in marriages, oftentimes, and you, statistically, you don't even have to think about this from the perspective of Scripture and the study of the curse. You look at statistics. You look at, go to Barna Research Group and do some searches there. How many times can you read of statistics where one of the primary uh, challenges that affect marriages and marital, marital strength is money? Well, what is that about? I mean, we're not trying to... We're not, we don't get our money usually from finding buried treasure in our backyard. It's usually about a job or about work or about career, right? So you, you can almost invariably trace so many different points of struggle and challenge and pain and toil back to this cursed earth and, and cultivating and working the ground by the sweat of your face and the persistent, perpetual battle against thorns and thistles, thorns and thistles and thorns and thistles, that in our day and time manifest themselves in all kinds of ways that have nothing to do with a plant, but they still, they still hurt when you get stuck with them, right? So again, the nature of this is, is profound in the, in, the, in the way it plays itself out. Another 
quote, this is from a, a MacArthur sermon on this subject. He says this, The woman suffers the effect of the curse in the home, the place of her life and labor. The man suffers the effect of the curse in the field, the place of his life and labor. For her, the pain comes in a relationship between her children and her husband. For him, the pain comes in relationship with the ground as the battle for bread is waged. The woman engages in the battle for the holiness and the happiness of the family. The man engages in the battle for the food and support of the family. Man's life is not going to be easy. Not only is he personally sinful, depraved and fallen, decaying and headed toward death, but he's going to have another problem. He's going to find that every ground which provides for him his life and sustenance for himself and his family is not going to willfully submit to him. Life becomes for him hard work. The joy of paradise is gone. So that's the nature of the curse of man. Now, it's obviously, it extends well beyond that. And this is where I had been intending to go. By the way, you notice at the beginning of our time today, I didn't say anything about when we're going to finish this because I've said that like multiple times and, and we haven't done it. Um, but I, I, I want us to go for at least a little bit, and we're not going to be able to do it for, for too much here, but maybe just by way of, of quick reference, um, to go to some of the key New Testament passages that uh, talk about this introduction of sin into the world. And, you know, there is, uh, not everybody would agree, both in history nor even now, even in uh, what would otherwise be professing um, Christian circles, uh, that they would not, they would not embrace the, the doctrine of original sin. They, they would ar- argue that, um, that sin is, uh, is an individual culpability kind of issue, that, that you and I are not, um, we weren't represented, the whole human race was not represented by Adam in the fall, but that each man, each woman, becomes fallen at the point of their own sin. you follow what I'm saying with that? That's, that's kind of a, a one a doctrinal perspective. Um, and again, I'm, I'm opening up a massive can of worms here in terms of theological um, implications and, and scripture references and all that. So I don't intend for us to kind of dive into it right this second. But the point of the matter is, is that it is a, a critical uh, do, uh, doctrine and tenet, tenet of the Christian faith. And, and it's really important and it has implications for a whole a lot of other important doctrines and a, whole, a lot of other important um, passages of Scripture that, that are important for us to understand that relate to our understanding of the nature of salvation, the nature of the atonement, um, the nature of Christ's purposes and coming and sacrificing, uh, dying on the cross. So there's a lot of important doctrinal implications for us uh, to understand. But turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll just kind of begin to touch on a little bit of this. Um, what did I say? I said Rome. Did I say Romans? Yeah, Romans five. Sorry, Romans five. And obviously, we've we've walked through this passage uh, in a very detailed way in in our main service with um, Pastor Kohler. And so, I would I would encourage all of us, if you want to kind of refresh on that, to go back and listen to that online. But just to kind of introduce it to us, this this principle of of Adam and his federal headship, meaning his. He is the head of the human race, and this fall into sin was not just Adam's fall, but it was humanity's fall. Um, So look at verse 12 there. That's kind of the the seminal verse in this whole section about this particular point. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin and sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, just real quickly here, again, I'm, I'm going to just in a cursory way point out some things, but, but what you'll see here is that it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and you might read that and say, well, that kind of settles it, right? I mean, it says right there, sin came into the world through one man. But those, who, those might argue against that, that federal headship or original sin doctrine. Um, they might argue against it by saying that uh, it came into the world as a result of Adam's sin, but it, but it spread to all men because all sinned. And they would say, that's where their sin came from, because it spread as a result of it coming into the world, but they sinned, and so that was the, that was the source of their sin. There's no original sin that, that is a, um, is, uh, has to be remedied as a result of Adam's fall for all humanity. Right. I mean, and, and this goes back, um, I mean, this goes back, there's been uh, doctrinal debates in, 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 throughout history over this very issue. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to introduce unnecessary controversies for us to quibble over, but I just want to make a few points about it. We'll do this next week. But there's been, you know, some, some important, you know, debates. And it had, really, to me, the, the reason why it's, it's important for us to deal with it, obviously because it's in Scripture, but we've been studying through Romans, so I don't want to, you know, belabor the points that we're kind of studying through in our main service. But it's just important for us to be reminded because it has to do also with the nature of the atonement of Christ, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Okay, So the passages in the New Testament, just like this one, and also in 1 Corinthians that we'll look at next week, they touch on, they're stated not just in reference to trying to make an argument for original sin, but it's really talking about the nature of the atonement and the nature of the law and our relationship with the law and being under the law and what Christ did on the cross. So it's, it has implications for us as believers and how we understand the work of Christ as well. So I want to just talk a little bit about that starting next week. We'll dive in a little bit into Romans chapter 5 and the passage in 1 Corinthians just a little bit to kind of build that out. And then I think that, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I am about to do it. I think that next week, if we touch on that for just a little bit, then we'll, we'll wrap up the rest of Genesis chapter 3 um, at the very, the very last few verses uh, after the, the curses are leveled out where um, they're, they're given new clothing and, um, and then they're put out of the garden. We'll talk about that next week too, I think.